I wanted to start a sermon this morning by asking a question, when was the last time you failed someone? And I know that's such a joyous way to begin, but, uh, uh, and you don't need to answer it out loud, but do answer that question uh, in your mind. When was the last time you failed someone? And I'm not talking about, uh, not talking about maybe a failure to complete a project on time or, or to a certain standard or, or don't, don't focus on an innocent mistake that, you know, that anybody could have made, but, but a, a failure in terms of relationship with someone. When was the last time you relationally failed a person? And, and, and then what was that experience like? Reflect on that. Uh, how did it affect your relationship with that person? How did it affect your, your emotional health, even your physical health? Um, how did it affect your view of yourself as you pondered what you did, why you did that? Again, I know this isn't the most joyful way to begin this morning, but but I think taking a moment to, to reflect on a situation like that from our own lives will, will be beneficial as we look today at the story of someone else who failed in a pretty serious way. The story of Peter's denial of Jesus on the night of his arrest is, is one that ought to cause an emotional response from within us. And it's not, not, just, not just because we love Jesus and it, and it hurts us to see him betrayed like that, but we, all, we ought to rightly see ourselves in Peter and consider the ways in which we too have failed, and, and not just others, but, but failed Jesus as well. And again, even though this is kind of a sorrowful way to begin the sermon, I promise you we're going to end with good news this morning and, and hope this morning. So hang in there with me and, and we will get there. But let's begin by, by refreshing our minds on the details of Peter's denial of Jesus. And so to do that, let's first look at what took place just a few hours before it all unfolded. And so we'll begin by reading in Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. It's page 832 in the Pew Bibles. I would encourage you to turn, and turn there and follow with me. And this is what we read. It says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this is immediately after the Last Supper in the upper room. It says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So immediately after the Last Supper, Jesus' disciples, they go out to the Mount of Olives. By that point, what was supposed to be a meaningful and joyful Passover feast had 
already turned rather difficult. I mean, during the meal, Jesus had already foretold the betrayal of Judas. Jesus again referenced his upcoming death. And then they get here to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus tells his disciples, you're all going to fall away. In fact, what was going to happen had been prophesied centuries before in the book of Zechariah. Now, there's a glimmer of hope in all of it, right? Even though the disciples would all fall away, Jesus planned to meet them after his resurrection. He said he would go ahead of them into Galilee. So, so we already get this glimpse that, that their desertion of Jesus would, would not be the final note in the song, right? And as I said, we'll, we'll get to those hope-filled notes in a bit. But then there's Peter in the midst of this whole thing. He's not about to take this statement from Jesus lying down. In fact, he's willing to throw the rest of the disciples under the bus. Right? I mean, they might fall away, Jesus, not me. I, I would never fall away. His money is on the fact that even if, if they all fall away, he won't. They might be scared. They might be shaky in their faith. But Peter's the rock, right? I mean, Jesus named him himself. Peter's the rock. Well, Jesus then speaks directly to Peter and, and gives him that famous prophecy that, that Peter would, in fact, deny knowing him three times before the rooster crowed. And then yet again, Peter essentially tells Jesus he's wrong by even more confidently saying, no, Jesus, I would die for you before I would ever deny you. A person might argue that the failure of Peter began right there. I mean, rather than humbly accept those words from his rabbi, even though they're difficult words, he, he pridefully rebelled against them. His view of himself was so inflated that, that he couldn't imagine failing Jesus. Well, let's, let's, see what, let's see what did indeed unfold. I'm sure we've heard the story before, but in Matthew chapter 26, verse 69, we'll see whether Jesus or Peter was proven right. It says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So, so some things to notice here. First, Peter's three denials become increasingly firm and, and hurtful as, as he went on. When the, the first servant girl questioned him, he kind of played dumb. Right? He pretended not to understand the question that was being asked. So I suppose in a court of law, 
the, the response that Peter gave probably wouldn't be enough to convict him of a denial. He doesn't ever actually say, I don't know Jesus. He just says, I'm, I'm confused. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, God knows the heart, right? Not just words or actions. So that non-answer wasn't something Peter could hide behind when it comes to God. But he, he starts with, well, I, I don't understand the question. Well, then another servant girl speaks to him uh, about speaks about him to others, and, and Peter ups the ante this time. So he doesn't, doesn't just deny he knew Jesus, but he swears an oath. He had apparently forgotten what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Let your yes be yes, your no be your no. Be no. Don't, don't need to swear an oath. And since his no was actually a lie, that's probably what caused him to feel like he needed to swear an oath there. But man, that, that example is a good reminder to us that all the oaths in the world don't change a lie into a truth. I mean, Peter can even more boldly state that he doesn't know Jesus, but it's still not true. And again, he, he, he maybe could try to fool those around him, but, but he could not fool God. God knows the heart. And then finally, the crowd comes up to Peter with, with irrefutable evidence that he knew Jesus. Peter, you have an unmistakable Galilean accent. Of course you know Jesus. And Peter goes on, makes his final denial, like as, as harsh as he knew how. He didn't just swear another oath. He, this time he calls down curses on himself. But, but again, all the curses in the world wished upon ourselves don't change a lie into a truth. I mean, Peter just keeps digging that hole deeper and deeper and deeper. I mean, any moment he could have stopped, he could have, could have spoken the truth, he could have repented of his actions, but, but he just doubles down each time. And again, as we think about Peter and reflect on ourselves, there's been times in life where we've been there too, right? Maybe one of us here now is, is in the middle of that currently. And, and it, it, it looks so foolish when Peter does it, doesn't it? I mean, I look at him and I kind of shake my head like, Peter, what are you doing? And yet we can still be tempted to respond in that way. I mean, I have to imagine our own efforts in this type of thing look equally foolish in God's sight. We can get caught in this cycle of having to lie in order to cover another lie. And, and there's this downward pull that, that just keeps sucking us in deeper into it. And, and, and as we're soon going to find out from Peter, it's just not worth it. I don't know what he thought he would achieve through his answers, but, but it wasn't worth it. it. It didn't lead him to where he wanted to go. Where it led him at the very end was fleeing the scene and weeping bitterly. There was nothing left for, for uh, Peter to do after the rooster crowed but, but to weep over his actions, over his attitude. And, and we're not told if they're tears of regret or tears of repentance. Really not sure. Um, I think we'd be correct in assuming both. I think there's probably both in there. And it's important that we don't speed over that final statement in chapter 26, because when we get to talking about the hope of restoration, we have to remember that, that restoration isn't something that's forced upon us by God. If we're not repentant for the things that we've done, then we'll find that forgiveness and restoration aren't present there either. And, and it probably would be just fine, because if we're not repentant, we wouldn't 
see a need for forgiveness or restoration anyway. We wouldn't even want that. Why, we don't even, why would we need that, right? But as is stated in 1 John chapter 1, it's when we confess our sins that we find forgiveness and cleansing from those sins. Our, our confession and, and repentance, it's not a magic formula to secure salvation. It's the attitude that allows us to receive the salvation freely offered to us by God. And so, even though this scene doesn't end with Peter receiving forgiveness and restoration quite yet, the stage is at least set. It's ready for it to happen. Now, as I, as I was thinking about, you know, Peter and, and his story, I'll say I'm not, I'm not a screenwriter for movies, but, but if I was... This would be the point in the story that I would have a flashback if I was kind of telling the story of Peter. As Peter left the high priest's house and went out to weep over what he'd just done, I, I would show Peter thinking back to his first encounters with Jesus. So let's, let's do that. Let, let, let's go back to the beginning. And, and I promise there's, there's good reason in doing this, just like a flashback in a movie, there'd be good reason to it. So, so if we look at Luke chapter 5, we see one of those early meetings between Peter and Jesus. And I'm, I'm going to read through the story at the beginning of Luke chapter 5. And, and the main thing I want you to do is, is observe the details of the story, because those are going to come into play later on. So Luke chapter 5, it's on page 860 in the Pew Bibles. And it says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And that's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So we already read uh, in our scripture reading, we read in John's gospel, the time where, where Simon Peter's brother, Andrew, first introduced Peter to Jesus. And, and even though that was the time where, where Jesus told Simon that, that he would be called Peter, he changed his name right there at, at that first encounter. It doesn't seem like until this second meeting that, that Peter kind of jumps in with both feet, that he's all in for following Jesus. Peter, Peter had been fishing. That was his occupation. He'd caught, I mean, talk about a rough night. He'd caught nothing. He'd caught nothing that night. 
But at the word of Jesus, the nets were let down one more time, and, and the resulting catch was so huge that they filled two boats to the breaking point. And as a result of such a miraculous display, and presumably because of the teaching he had heard Jesus give as well, Peter, along with James and John, left their fishing business behind, and they, and they became disciples of Jesus. They followed him. Matthew and Mark record that simple verbal invitation that Jesus gave, follow me. And so they did. I mean, quite the beginning for Peter, right? How, how honored, how humbled he must have felt to have Jesus not only perform an incredible miracle on his behalf, but then call him to be his disciple. And how much more it must have crushed Peter when he thought about what he had just done by denying three times that he even knew Jesus. Seems like Peter maybe even felt like his failure was ultimate, was permanent, that there was no coming back from it. And the reason I say that is because of what takes place in John chapter 21. Go ahead and turn there with me, John chapter 21. While you're doing so, I, in my study for, for today's sermon, I was, I was fascinated by thinking about the couple weeks in, that transpired in between Peter's denials and the story that we're going to read next. Because in that time, Jesus was sentenced to death, he was crucified, he was buried in a tomb, he rose from the dead, and then met with his disciples on two separate occasions. It's where he showed up in the locked room when his disciples were there. We have every reason to believe that Peter was there for those two appearances by Jesus. We also know Peter was one of the disciples who went to the empty tomb on that first Easter morning. But amidst all of that, there, there aren't any recorded conversations between Peter and Jesus. Doesn't mean that there weren't any, but there aren't any recorded for us in, in the, uh, the Bible. We're, giving noth we're given nothing in the Gospels that would indicate to us that there had been relational restoration between Jesus and Peter at this point, a couple weeks after his denials. And I think the scene that unfolds at the beginning of John 21 gives some confirmation to that. So, so uh, follow with me, John chapter 21, verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. <laughs> I told you there was a reason we did that flashback, right? I mean, many of the details of that initial calling of Peter are played out in this story. They're at the Sea of Galilee. 
James and John, his partners, are, are present with him again. They've, they've been fishing all night and caught nothing. Jesus told them, I'll give it one more shot. Carpenter telling fishermen what they ought to do, right? And, and after doing so, a miraculous number of fish are caught. So if it seems like the scene of Peter's initial calling is being recreated, it's because it is. I think there's intent for sure in what Jesus is doing here. I mean, perhaps Peter had given up hope of succeeding as Jesus' disciple, and so he went back to what he knew before, went back to fishing. Perhaps he thought his initial failure was final. That was it. I think the recreation of Peter's calling is meant to change his thinking in that regard. And, and that initial calling of Peter wasn't the only story that Jesus recreated at the Sea of Galilee that day. There, there's another story Jesus brought back to life in his conversation with Peter. If we skip down to verse 15, we find it there. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So what's the other story that Jesus brought back to life that day? The story that Peter probably would rather forget, right? His denying even knowing Jesus three times. And just like Peter had been asked three questions about whether or not he knew Jesus two weeks before, Jesus asks him, three questions again. And even though Peter had three times wounded Jesus through his words, Jesus restored him by allowing him three times to proclaim his love for him. Peter's, Peter's denials of Jesus were not the final notes of the song. Just when the orchestra had, had faded down, hanging on to that minor chord, the song regained new life, right? As the opening refrain is reprised and, and it's, it's brought back even more powerfully than it was at the very beginning. I mean, just as Jesus had done when he first called Peter, he gave him the same invitation after his restoration. He said, follow me. In essence, Peter, this isn't the end. You haven't failed beyond all hope. I'm not moving on to somebody else. Peter, follow me. His failures had not neglected 
the calling which Jesus, not, excuse me, negated the calling which Jesus had placed upon his life. The restoration that Jesus offered Peter was complete. Complete restoration. In in Jesus' prophecy about the way in which Peter would die, I think we can kind of miss the main point of the statement. The main point is that Peter was going to persevere. He was going to persevere to the point that he would be killed for his faith. At some point in the future, Peter's going to be questioned again about his relationship with Jesus. And when that happens, he's going to say yes. There's going to be enough evidence to kill him. I mean, Peter had failed miserably. But due to Jesus restoring him, he would eventually succeed faithfully. His future death would be an incredible testimony to the fullness of Peter's restoration. I told you there would be hope. I mean, the beginning of the story, it's hard to see it, but by the end, this is incredible. And this is the point where we're we ought to come back to ourselves, come face to face with our own failures. Whether we've failed God directly or indirectly through failing others, we've failed God. We have. Maybe it was a major one-time event. Maybe like Peter, it's one failure that led to another. Either way, when we read the story of Peter's denials, we are right to think about our own failures. It ought to lead us to a place where, where maybe it's literally or, or maybe it's metaphorically, we, we weep over our actions. It's, it's right to weep tears of regret when we fail Jesus. It, it's right to weep tears of repentance when we fail Jesus. But in the midst of those tears, We can't forget that Jesus is the one who restores. Jesus is the one who makes us whole. He forgives us of our sins. He pulls us back to himself. He he reaffirms our calling. Now, I I don't know the details of all of our failures in this room, but I do know that we're not disqualified for what Jesus has called us to. We have not failed to such a great degree that there is no hope. Even if we've given up hope, like it seems Peter did, there is hope because Jesus is the God who restores us. And so in those moments where where Satan and, and where our sinful nature tells us flee from God. You, you failed. You just, just give up. and there, There's no hope. We ought to instead turn back to God that, that we might humbly receive the restoration that he offers to us. And the restoration that he gives is, is not, he doesn't do it begrudgingly. He doesn't do it scornfully. It's not like, all right, Peter, you, you're back in the group, but we're knocking you down a few notches. I mean, it is full restoration, complete restoration, and it's because of his love for us. What is offered to Peter is offered to us as well. How incredible that is. I found myself thinking about King David also. He, he was another guy who knew failure. 
he was forced to face his failure when, when Nathan the prophet brought to light his adulterous and murderous sins that David maybe thought he had been able to keep hidden, keep secret. And, and while we shouldn't follow the example of David's sins, I think we should follow the example of his prayer to God. And so I want to end this morning by reading some of David's words in Psalm 51. These are words in which we hear David move from, from confession to repentance to, to receiving cleansing and restoration. Um, they're words that proclaim that just as there was hope for David and just as there was hope for Peter, there's hope of restoration in Jesus for you and me too. So let, let's, let's stand together and, and uh, let's bow our heads too. I'll, this will be our closing prayer this morning as I read through the first 12 verses of Psalm 51. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Amen.